Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sony Music's Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. We're very excited this week. We've got a great guest for you, Daryl Braithwaite. Wonderful artist, amazing singer, such an iconic Australian uh, voice. Daryl has a wonderful new single out at the moment called Love Songs. And if you haven't seen it, you've got to check the video clip out. It's got all these little cool Easter eggs that pertain to Daryl's career over the course of, it's hard to think about it, 50 years. On the chat we have today, we've done it with Daryl in isolation in Victoria. Um, I'm in Queensland. We spoke via Zoom. And we, we kind of dug deep. We spoke about Love Songs. We spoke about uh, his comeback in the late 80s, early 90s with The Edge and Rise and so on. Uh, we went way back to Sherbet, school days, lots of great anecdotes in this conversation. And um, I want to shout out to our friends at Sony that have made this happen, particularly Dennis Handlin and Tony Glover. We're very pleased to be doing this episode for you. Here's the man himself, Daryl Braithwaite. Hey, Daryl, nice to see you today. Yeah, Lovely. I was sort of thinking about this remarkable song you've had, Love Songs, how it's kind of stormed up the charts. And there's that old thing about, you know, there's no second acts in life. But I think you've had about three of them. <laughs> I've, I've been... Uh, I think I've been very fortunate that, uh, that things have... Uh, and, and I look at them more as... Um, like, I, I don't go searching... Well, over looking for things or for things to happen, but it's just, uh, I think that old saying of, you know, being in the right place at the right time and, and doing the right thing, making the right choices, has possibly applied in some cases. But, um, you know, whether it be with, I guess, the Sherbet thing or then coming into the solo, the first solo uh, thing with maybe going looking right back at You're My World and then looking further ahead when Edge came out and As the Days Go By was the first single and uh, then, of course, The Horses and now this with Love Songs. It's uh, But it, it is an intuitive thing. I mean, I heard, I guess I heard that song, Love Songs, about six months ago and I thought, and, and I was asked to send it on to Roger, our ex-manager, and I heard it. Before I sent it off, I, I played it and I thought, God, this really, it sounds. And I thought that it actually sounded, it sounded like Pink, most definitely. Her, because the, the person that sang it um, had sang it with, I guess, Pink in mind. And um, yeah, I just thought, what a great song. And then I in, <laughs> inadvertently end up with it. So the, I think the thing was uh, you were asked to send it to Roger Davies for Pink, possibly, yes. but you had a bit of a communication meltdown with your phone that the email didn't go through? On the phone, I, I got the email on there and I played it and Peter said, can you send it on? And I, and I after I played it, I sent it uh, to the best of my ability. I sound like I'm in a court case. You are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> To the best of my ability, <clears throat> I sent it off to, to Roger and uh, for all intents and purposes, I thought, oh, that's gone. And then I didn't hear from him for uh, virtually ever. And then three months down the line after we'd, uh, the band and I had been playing it, I had lunch with Roger and uh, over lunch I, told, I asked him, I said, did you get that song, Love Songs, that I sent through? And he said, oh, I can't remember... 
receiving an email from you with a song on it, but I'll have a look when I get home. I said, oh, okay, yep. And so after lunch, he uh, had a look at his emails and he contacted me and said, no, no, I haven't got it. And so I thought, mm. So then I sent it off to him again on a, on a real computer and uh, he got it and he came back to us about half an hour later and, and, and said, no, that's, it's a great song, but it suits you more than Pink. I guess it was one of those interesting things too, Daryl, where I assume back in the 70s with Sherbert or even the 60s, you would road test songs in front of a crowd and see if they connected with people. And strangely, you got to do that with love songs as well, didn't you, by playing it live? Oh, yeah, most, most definitely. It was uh, like in the Sherbert times, we did, we did used to uh, test run songs uh, with, with the audience. And if... And you sort of knew that uh, if if they were working or not, you could just sense. And and not only you get the reaction back from people, but um, also within yourself, you knew. You know, we all knew in Sherbet, and and it applies now. I mean, even with this love songs, we maybe a month after sending the uh, the song off to Roger, and I hadn't heard back. I I thought it was a good idea to learn the song and play it because I liked it so much. And so we did and uh, I we played it in the set maybe about halfway through it and uh, I didn't introduce it and didn't back announce it, just left it completely up to an audience to interpret it, you know, like uh, if, whether they liked it or not. And, uh, well, it seemed like we were getting favourable, you know, a, a positive sort of uh, confirmation that it, it was all right. So I just kept doing it and then you know, ended up recording it. <laughs> yeah, it's just been a massive hit. It's funny, I was at the uh, traffic lights the other day in Brisbane and there's a guy in an old white Commodore and his right. number plate just said, how's that? It's like the coolest number plate. And then I saw your video clip. Oh, yes, yes. The video clip for Love Songs with Sherbet on the number plate on the old EH or each J. It's such a great look. Don't you? It's, I mean, the, um, going, looking at that for the moment, the, the, uh, the video clip is a, an absolute, I, I don't know, I, I, I remember mentioning to uh, Sony that it would be maybe, or Dennis, whoever it was from Sony, I, I said maybe we can incorporate some things from the past clips like uh, as the days go by, one summer or whatever, or in the, in the video that they were making. And, the, and they had told me that it was going to be like a cartoonish sort of thing, animated but uh, and made in New Zealand. And when I first saw the first rush of it, I uh, I just thought, my God, how good is that? I mean, just in the sense that um, the New Zealanders who very, I don't think they they weren't uh, really aware of what of my history as such. So Sony had to, I guess, tell them you know this, that, and whatever, and. Uh, but they compiled it over, the, uh, I guess, about six weeks and uh, did such a good job of it. And I have spoken to them via email over the past oh, three weeks or so and, uh, and they said, now we've got the song on our head and we can't get it out of our head. And I said, yeah, sorry about that, but, uh, you know, that's the way it goes. (laughs) I just love all the little references to your career from the past right up to now. It's 
I thought if you wouldn't mind, we might sort of go back a little bit uh, yeah. to when you started off. I mean, you were a choir boy, weren't you? That was your debut? Yeah, yeah, choir boy uh, at uh, Christchurch Grammar with, with my brother, Glenn, and uh, we, we sang in the choir there at, uh, here in, in Melbourne for, gee, it must have been like two or three years, I think, while, while we were at school there. And it was the best. Um, oh, best experience, I think, that, uh, that, I, that I can remember. I mean, I enjoyed it immensely, going to choir practice. Uh, it would get you out of some lessons, you know, which was, uh, which was good. But uh, it was just singing some of the, the majestic pieces that we did, like Haydn, Haydn, Haydn's Messiah and uh, a lot of stuff that we did, usually sang on weekends, Sundays, and then uh, occasionally we'd get weddings to sing at, which were, they were always thrilling, the weddings, because you didn't know uh, really what pieces they were, they, the people had selected. But more often than not, they were just, they were lovely. It was just, it was just such, I think singing in a group like that, a, a choral group was uh, very rewarding. Was that when you first became aware that you did have a voice, like a special uh, voice? Yeah, no, um, I, I think a little bit earlier, probably um, probably when we were about nine, ten, before we were in the choir, we used to sing along with the, um, the songs of the time back then, which would have been about 1959, 1960, and uh, on a record player, because I think our auntie... Auntie Betty or Auntie Edna used to have a, a record player that we'd we'd play uh, all these songs from that period on and and sing along with them. And mainly they were, uh, as I recall, I think it was mainly women or singers that we we followed, like Kathy Kirby and the likes of her. And uh, and I think that may be why uh, falsetto was one of my things that I learned how to do back then because it was singing along, along with women who sing in a higher tone sometimes than men. So you just, yeah, but you know, and, uh, and that's where I think I got the falsetto from. Well, that's my reason anyway. <laughs> no, yeah, that's, it's, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. What was the big bang for you as an artist in terms of uh, you thinking, this is what I want to do for a living? Was there anything you saw or heard that really went boom in your mind? I think Sean was that would be the uh, uh, growing. Well, I, I think the Beatles had uh, a big effect on you know me. Uh, or I guess going down that path of uh, of singing, not, not maybe not so much singing professionally because I think that 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 came just a little bit later when I was twenty, but. Um, I, I think the Beatles most definitely did it. And also growing up, um, when we moved to Sydney in 1963, uh, there, was, there was surfing and there was music and there was everything that went with that then. And uh, we were into music so much, like, like I guess most young people, and uh, used to sing everything. And then we started... Uh, like hobby bands, 
and which we'd play maybe once a month or something like that. So I think it was always there. But then when, when uh, I left school a bit early, like year four, and uh, Dad got us a job at Cockatoo Island as an apprentice fitter and turner. And so I, I did that. And in the meantime, I was surfing and I think dabbling in music as well. Uh, as a hobby, and then it came uh, a quick travel forward um, from those hobby bands. I then uh, got approached by Clive Shakespeare from Sherbet, and I think Bruce Worrell, the bass player, to uh, they approached me and said, "Do you want to join or try out for Sherbet?" So I did, and then I got got the gig and. Uh, and that's when Clive said, well, it's a professional. It has a professional that you'll have to join, which means I couldn't do anything else. It's funny, JPY was a fitter and turner as well, wasn't he? I, I think he was either a fitter and turner or a sheet metal worker. But there's been a lot of trades, <laughs> a lot of trades people. Yeah. Uh, Graham Strawn was a... He was a chippy, uh, right? A carpenter, yeah, and chippy. Um, I know that my bass player, Jason Vora... <laughs> is a fit ex-fitter and turner as well. And we sometimes talk about, uh, in, in a funny way, about some of the things that we made as, as fitters and turners. And uh, it, it didn't amount to much, really. <laughs> well, it's funny. I think, I think Johnny Farnham, well, John Farnham was a plumber. And, uh... yeah, yeah, he, I think he, yeah, it, it's been a long line of, um, people that couldn't find the, the true value in doing a trade and they've moved into, oh, singing, that's easy. <laughs> Handy guys to have around the house. So I know that you, you joined, you were in Bright Lights and House of Bricks beforehand and as you mentioned, you joined Sherbet. Now you guys came up against Bon Scott in fraternity, didn't you, in the Battle of the Bands in 71? Yes, we did. Did he leave an we, impression uh, on you? Uh, he did because we, we played... Um, at a, at a place called Jonathan's in in Sydney back in 1970, maybe 71, 72, and we had a residency there and we had a residency with, um, uh, with Fraternity and Bon was the singer with Fraternity and uh, we had some great times there because they, and they were slightly... Uh, obviously, well, a different band to what we were. They were more maybe left of field, whereas we were more pop, pop rock, but no, nowhere near as pop as what Sherbet ended up in the end. But um, but we used to have great time and we'd alternate at this gig, Jonathan's, we'd alternate, like we'd do a set of 40 minutes, then there'd be a 10-minute break, then fraternity would go on and we'd do that maybe four times a night, we'd, we'd play uh, four sets. And then we had a, the occasional barbecue and Bond was very quiet, as I remember. He was uh, just very, not shy, but just, uh, I can remember just kept to himself and sort of, and I, I can remember we had a, a couple of conversations, but nothing, nothing in depth, but it was, uh, but we were friends, which was great. So I get the impression that Jonathan's was kind of like your Hamburg, wasn't it? Eight-month residency. 
What a nice... That's a lovely comment. Yes, no, I think it is. Because it, uh, we, we, we learnt a lot there of how from the, uh, the, the owner of the place, John Spooner, he, uh, he for, was forever giving us hints or, or help uh, from an outsider's point of view because it was his club. <laughs> but he'd sort of... Uh, I think he'd, he'd say things, yeah, no, 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 uh, we'd do a song and then he'd go, no, okay, sounds good, but you need to make it just a bit faster because the audience... And I can't believe that we took all this stuff off him. I mean, just go, right, oh, okay, yeah. And I think he had me... Um, what did he have? Oh, because he liked... I think he liked the talking... Um, in between songs, but he he said to master that, Daryl, we'll get some some pebbles, like off a beach or somewhere, put them in your mouth, and then try to talk with them in your mouth, because that will that will bring oh, fuck <laughs> okay. And being young and impressionable, I thought, oh, okay. So um, I took all these points on and. Uh, I, I guess they, uh, you know, we, we didn't reject them outright, but uh, I think we took all of his advice, especially from his perception being out there as a a person coming to the gig. Uh, we took it on and uh, you tried to utilise as best we could. You, you mentioned that Sherbet were a heavier band when you started. What kind of covers? You were doing free songs and things like that back then? Yeah, yeah, we're doing uh, free. We were, uh, oh, Edwin Starr, War, you know, War, all this sort of stuff. And uh, and I think we did a bit of psychedelic stuff too back in the, oh, well, would have been early 70s. And, uh, but we used to do maybe, oh, maybe two to three new songs a week. And, and we'd, we'd, we'd do them and then if they didn't work, they'd quickly get the flick and we'd, we'd put something else in. And it was around then, I think, that we started to write our own material and try and incorporate that in the set. And, and of course, we'd go through that principle of seeing how people reacted to it and how, we, how we'd react to them reacting. And it either stayed in the set or got, or got dropped. When the songs were being written, the original songs, was it a case of you guys working them out at rehearsal at the venue or did you go around to, you know, Garth's house and he'd sit at the piano with Tony or Alan and play them for you? Uh, I, I think we went to... Um, it went mostly to uh, somebody's place and you, you'd take, uh, like, the guitars, no amps, and then sometimes we'd go to a... Uh, a rehearsal studio as such and, and bash them out and all that sort of stuff. But and I, I think someone had someone had a garage as well. I think we had a garage underneath us that we used to use for for rehearsal um, in Rose Bay. So yeah, but we I, I remember we did rehearse quite a lot at like at least twice a week. Yeah, it's phenomenal looking at the statistics. Um between 1970 and 1984, there was 20 hit singles and 10 platinum records, which is just oh, remarkable. that's all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a beautiful bit of footage on um, 
YouTube these days. I think Mike Mead might have linked it on Facebook, uh, where these kids have been interviewed about Sherbet. They came and saw a gig and they're talking about you. And there's such a lovely connection they feel with the band. And because I guess we lived in what we call the monoculture back then, there wasn't a lot of options for things to do and see. And But you guys were so deeply connected to the culture. Did you feel this two-sided, um, I guess, kinship and love affair with the Australian people? Yeah, I think there was something... Um uh, I, I think all of us in Sherbet used to look at it and think it was um, that we were we were luck, lucky to be there, but God, it was really good. It was, uh, um, and I, and I think we knew we knew the difference from performing and how people's perception of us to how we um, how we actually lived as well, which was very similar. So there were no. So it was just an extension of our lives, really, the Sherbet thing, even though um, I guess people could look at it and think, oh, yeah, but what about your success there, or, you know, here, there, England? Did that affect you? And I don't, I don't think we ever lost um, sight of the fact that we were all, you know, uh, in a band and we also had our own lives and all that sort of stuff, but... And I, so I guess I don't think we ever got too lost sight of it or became too big-headed or whatever you want to call it, but because we understood that it was just, we were, I think, just fortunate that the five of us all got on, or six with Roger, and uh, that that was a great part of it as well, the chemistry of it. You've obviously got a great ear for picking a hit song. Love Songs has kind of proven that. Uh where, was there any of the big Sherbet hits that maybe either uh, Clive, Garth, Tony played for you and you went, ah, oh, I don't think that's going to be a smash and they proved you wrong? Oh. Or did you have a pretty good barometer? I think... Um, no, I, th- I think you'd know. I mean, if Clive or Garth had written something, then they, they would play it. And I think that, I think that was the thing that you would... Uh, all of us would state our opinions of like, oh, I don't like that, that chord, that you know, that. And and then you go with it. But um, I think some of them you probably look at and maybe underneath it all you think, oh, yeah, good song, good. But it maybe didn't have the uh, the, the effect that maybe House That had or something like that. Or then, then there would be the reverse where you think, uh, especially in the um, the Sherbs period, mm. where, we, where we had Skill Album, which I yeah. thought, I I actually thought, my God, how good are, are all those songs? And they they basically all failed except for I Have the Skill, which I think got airplay yeah. in America. But it did, yeah. But yeah, the um, so those songs. I remember think, thinking that. I thought, God, these are really, this is going to knock people's socks off. But it never did. So, you know. <laughs> I, I guess the irony is that Daft Punk let a sample, did, didn't they, on their record, Random Access Memories? Yeah, how good. <laughs> with, with that situation, I remember my, uh, my son Oscar saying to me that I was, 
I became cool along with the rest of Sherbet, but uh, with his friends back then, which would, yeah. would that have been about eight, ten years ago that that, or not that many years. Oh, maybe six. Six. Yeah, it became, he was telling me, yeah, Dad, my friends think that's pretty cool. That I said, oh, okay, oh, lovely. But it was a, a strange situation. I mean, how they how they even picked out that, that particular track out of, you know, millions of songs. Yeah. They ended up with that one. I remember doing some work and meeting Richard Lush, who, of course, had worked with the Beatles on Sgt Pepper. In fact, I think his first day at work was T-Boy on Paperback Writer, which is a great start to a career. Uh, what was it like having him come into your camp and produce you guys? It, it, was, um, it was lovely because we, uh, well, firstly, we knew that he had been the Beatles, you know, uh, a tape operator and worked with them and all that and, and was very hard over the years that we recorded with him. It was uh, very hard to get stories out of him about the Beatles. He was very discreet. But uh, uh, it, I, I think we all trusted him explicitly, like, and his suggestions. He was, he was never... He was never a tyrant in the in the production stakes. He'd always take everyone's suggestion on board and and yeah. try to analyse it. Um, and there was actually I saw a special or an interview with him maybe two or three months ago where they were talking about the album that he was involved with with the Beatles and uh, he was just so he was so eloquent in his speech of uh, and explanation of working with the Beatles and what happened and you'd sit there engrossed and then right at the end he said the album that he loved of theirs or the song um, and I don't know which which one it was now it might have been Day in the Life I'm not not sure but anyway then he said yeah there's that one and there's How's That and I went (laughs) I, I nearly fell off my chair I thought my God, he said. Well, they gave him the most, the most joy that he'd done something really, or been involved with something that, in uh, his explanation, that had um, he had achieved something, you know, with those two tracks. And and I just, I went, wow, okay, how's that? That's good. Do you remember the first time you heard it through the playback speakers or anything like that? Uh no, I, I just remember recording it and thinking because it was, I think because it was different for us and especially with that opening like, ah, I just thought, wow, it's, um, th- this will have a, a good chance of, of being successful, I'm sure, because it just seems... Uh, it's just that intuitive thing, I guess, that I've got and a lot of people have when they hear songs, they go, that's got a good chance of yeah. of working. You've always maintained a solo career pretty much all the way along because uh, during the Sherbet heyday, you were having a lot of hits yourself. Uh, You're My World, of course, was a monster. It's a wonder they didn't kill me, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Did it go down well when you're racking up things like Old Sid and uh, You're My World and having big hits? Yeah, I, I never... Um, 
I, I think when that came about, all that, that solar stuff, it was instigated by more so with Clive. And uh, he, he had said to me, you know, would you... I think he might have been along the lines of, I've come up with this idea, Daryl, you don't have to go with it, but maybe if you record solo, just just to see how it would work. So, okay, yeah. Um, and we ne- never ever talked about the fact that would it have jeopardised the band and all of the... That didn't come into it. It was just like uh, an adjunct to what Sherbert was doing. So the first one as you mentioned before, was uh, You're My World, which was um, actually, I think, Mary Porter, who's, who's married to Garth, she was the one that I'm led to believe that she was, uh, she suggested that song and had listened to it. And, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, the Silver Black version. And so we recorded it and then bingo, it, it came out and did very well. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and Old Sid was written by Warren Morgan, I think, wasn't it? Warren Morgan, and uh, it's that 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 song, Old Sid, is uh, my my sound guy's favourite song. He he loves. I don't know if he loves, but such a um, we we played it occasionally, and and uh, it it does work. It's really really. Good. And I, I, every time I see Warren, Pig Morgan, I say to him, thank you very much for, you know, for yeah. old Sid. And uh, he, he's one of the only ones that can actually play. It's quite a difficult piece to play that the arpeggiator, dun 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 all that. And I've had one, two, maybe three keyboard players all look at me with this, yeah, uh, is that how it goes? I said, yeah. Now you've got to do uh, not just dun 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 dun. dun. No, no, it's got to have dun 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 dun. dun, dun. You got to put that, and so it's a taxing little, um, yeah. a little ditty. Now you have to um, maybe solve an urban myth for me. I heard that you were considered to be the lead singer in Toto. Is there any truth in that? Jesus. No, 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 no. Where did you hear that, Sean? <laughs> it's just one of those rumours that gets around that, you know, that uh, you, you were in the running to be in Toto. I just heard that somewhere. And I thought I could hear Daryl singing those big songs. Oh, and it, I would, gee whiz, that, no. Was that, what, years ago or last yeah, week? <laughs> no, <laughs> last week. No, I heard it years ago, you know. Yeah. Now the instant, all the truth we need is on the internet, so... Uh, you know, we can discount that. No, no. Well, I, I saw the other day that I died. <laughs> How long ago? A week ago. Somebody oh, said God. on Facebook, sent a thing saying, if you reply to this, I'll know that it's wrong. <laughs> and so I said, yes. But, yeah, I think it was on Wikipedia. Oh, my God. Somehow I died, like, July, I don't know, 18th or something. I thought, hmm, okay, but... But no, no, not Toto. Um, I don't think I've had many, many requests to join bands, but gee, Toto would have been a beauty, yeah. I saw a great picture on the net of Andy Gibb, Olivia and you, and I thought that is the zenith of living 70s pop star life. <laughs> well, thinking about that, Andy, um, I, I had one of the most... 
oh, exciting times going going to America in 1978 with uh, Roger, and we stayed, and it was. Uh, and then got invited to go down to Miami to stay on Andy's on Andy's boat down there at Miami, and uh, I did so, and uh, it was the best time. It was just uh, he was he was right at that, I guess that the middle of his career, which was just exploding, and uh, yeah, it was just I got to see. A different side of of him, I guess, because he, yeah, you know, he had all this, and uh, and then in in the three or four weeks I was there, I got to meet uh, Agnetha from ABBA. She came and visited and came on the boat. Then we went up to her apartment, and I remember chatting to her about so how you know how's it? <laughs> she, oh, we we you know um, we got a little island in. Sweden and, uh, you know, we're not like Americans, how they buy everything or whatever, but, yeah. but she was lovely. But Andy, Andy was great too. It was just, uh, and then there's Olivia, of course. She's absolutely lovely. Four great voices there. I'm not sure if you and Andy and Agnetha uh, jammed at all, but it would have been a hell of a session. Oh, would have been. <laughs> I actually saw that photo, I think the one that you're talking about with, um, with Olivia and Andy, and I thought, Gee whiz, it's uh, but I, I still communicate with Olivia now, and uh, she's going all right, but stuck in Los Angeles yeah. or California. But yeah, yeah. And you weren't aware that Olivia could sing when you were in school together, apparently. No, it no, wasn't I had public no, no idea. It was uh, like when we we were in the same class, and we were like boyfriend. I don't know. I guess. You'd have to ask her maybe if we were boyfriend, girlfriend, but, yeah, probably were for about a week or something. Or we held... I think we wrote notes, you know, that's about it, in class. But I never knew she could sing. It was... Because she wasn't in the choir and we never had sing-alongs in class or any of that that I can recall, but, yeah. But then she went on to sing. (laughs) Yeah. Really well. Yes, indeed. This is remarkable. I'm just thinking, you know, you're a kid in Melbourne, your parents move you to Sydney, you're surfing, you're at school with Olivia Newton-John, you're joining bands. Did you ever say thank you? <laughs> thank you for bringing me here. Oh, thank you to Olivia. No, to your parents for the move. <laughs> well, it, it was moving up there. Was I remember it was quite, um, we, we didn't really want to, Glenn and I, um, with oh god, well, and like like all those people that or children that are separated from their friends and school. Um, I think we did it with gritted teeth, but it was like Dad's job took him up there, so we uh, ended up going. And then, and then, as luck had it, we were right on the beach there at at Coogee, and then Mum. Uh, enrolled us both at Ramwick Boys High, which didn't have a choir. Yeah. And I can remember that fateful day when, when Mum said to the principal, can the boys join join the choir? And he, he went, choir? What choir? We don't have... We're mainly a, an academic school but more so sporting. 
Yeah. So that was it. That was it with the the choir. But it was it was great. I don't think it took us long to uh, get new friends up there, and and of course the surf and the beach, and then music and the whole thing you do when you're how old, fourteen yeah. onwards. Daryl, I guess um, too. Just the law of pop music is, and rock stardom. There's got to be a bell curve. You got to go up. You got to come down. <laughs> and then it's unfair, but I guess it's true, right? Yeah, yeah. What's it like the come down? It must be a weird sensation when your band is incredibly popular, and then it's not as popular as you would like. Uh well, my my son Oscar has has a a bit of a go at me now like being 2020, of, uh, of going, especially with love songs and the success that seemingly that, that it's had yeah. and the acceptance by this and that. And, and he, uh, he says with his tongue-in-cheek, oh, Dad, you've had a hard time, mate. You've been struggling all these years, like year in, year out. Now you've finally got success. And I go, yes, Oscar, it's very good. <laughs> so we we have a, a bit of a game about it. But it's um, when when the, di- the times have been down, I guess it's, uh, it's you, you, still, um, you still push on, I think, because there, there's nothing else that I can do. I mean... Besides sing, and so you just you just push through it, and I think um, I get I guess I've made the right decisions over the years, more right decisions than wrong, and yeah. and they've really been I guess more so heartfelt decisions than uh, than trying to intellectualise something about whether it's right or wrong. I think it's just it's purely. No, I feel good about that. I'll go with it. And that's it. Of course, you know, you actually working on the main roads for a while, weren't you, before uh, The Edge came out? Yeah. No, worked at uh, – had, had been doing gigs and I thought – and they mainly RSL gigs and stuff like that and, and that was really I, – I didn't feel comfortable doing that and it, I didn't like it, so – Dropped that and then started to run out of money and thought, I better go. I went on the dole mm. and then they found me a job and that, that was, as you said, working on the roads here in Victoria. And uh, that, that, again, that was something that, uh, that helped, you know. It was sort of because I, I didn't mind doing the work. It was great and the people that I worked with, all the probably about eight of us or ten of us, we all got on, and uh, they were a bit. Some of them were a bit perplexed as to why are you working on the road when we saw you on TV a couple of months ago or whatever it was. Yeah. So they were really uh, a, a big part of it as well, instrumental in sort of me going, okay, I've really got to make a go of it here. And then with the help of Sarah, my wife at the time. And maybe a handful of people, it all came together then to do, you know, um, trying to write songs, collect songs uh, with Garth Porter and different people, then Simon Hussey, the producer of Edge. And then it all came together and 
um, we started recording Edge and it worked. Absolutely it worked. And you, you once told me the first time you heard Days Go By on the radio. That must have been a pretty special moment. Oh, well, the, the first time I heard that, well, was when a publisher had actually sent me a, a cassette of As the Days Go By and also the other song that he wrote, All I Do. And I think the first one I, I listened to was All I Do and I thought, my God, that sounds... This is Ian Thomas from Can- Canada. Yeah. And I thought, God, that sounds good. Then I went to As the Days Go By and I thought, my God, how good is that? And I just... So they were the first... I don't think they would have been the first two, two songs because I'd listened to scores and scores of songs for over a period of a year or more. Um, but those two, I remember, especially as the days go by, I think we knew that that, that would be the first single no matter what because it just had, it, 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 yeah, it just had this is the right one. Written on it. I think you mentioned once you were driving somewhere and it came on the air for the first time. Oh yeah, no, it was down down here in Melbourne, and I heard it on, um, I think Fox FM. It would have been, and uh, I remember Barry Bissell doing the intro. You know, oh, this is the new song by, and I don't know if he said X. I don't think he he might have said X Sherbet or whatever it was, but. He said, okay, here it is, and then we heard it, you know, with the... And I thought, oh, God. And it sounded mighty, absolutely. Um, And thrilling to to actually hear yourself on... And it still is to this day. I mean, I didn't hear love songs until it had been on radio for four weeks, and I finally heard... Someone, I was sitting in the car and I heard the, 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 the guy from the radio station go, he was talking to a girl and she said, what song did you do? And she said, oh, something that, he said, did you know that Daryl Braithwaite's got a new song out? And she's gone, oh, no, what, another horses? And he's, she's, he's gone, no, no, it's better than that. It's called Love Songs. And then he played it and I went, oh, God, how good does that sound? So it was all... It, it's just, um, you know, it's, it's taken <laughs> all the years have moved on. It's just the same, the same effect, though, every time I hear it. You know, you're in fine voice because I, I loved the versions you did of Up on the Roof recently and If You Leave Me Now for your compilation. Oh. Both those tracks, I mean, you're singing so well. Well, thank you, Sean. That, that um, Up on the Roof... Um, I, I still think it's one of the, uh, uh, in my opinion, one of the best songs that I've sung for maybe a couple of decades. It was just, when I heard it, I mean, I, I knew the song, but then when, when we started to do it, I thought, this is sounding really, really good. And then on listening back to it, I thought, yep, that's, uh, I mean, but a beautiful song, but I, I think I... I did it justice and I, I felt happy with it, most definitely. I remember seeing you when you sort of came back, or say come back with uh, the Edge record, 
And you obviously drew a line in the sand where you were just going to concentrate on playing new material. That was obviously a conscious decision. So when you started that trilogy of records with Rise and uh, with Taste the Salt, were you thinking, I just have to be in the now, I've just got to be in the present moment? Yeah, it's... And I, I think I got that... Um, that that was the the stipulation that we that I, I wasn't going to play any sherbet material when when Edge came out and Rise, and uh, I basically just stuck to my guns until I, I think it was um, probably James Rain. We were working together at a gig, and he. Uh, I think we were looking something for, for something for an encore. And he said, what about How's That? And I said, James, come on, you don't do Boys Light Up or whatever it is. Anyway, um, he talked us into it and we did it that night and I thought there and then, I thought, yeah, it's, um, it's silly of me to discard that because that's part of my history as well, it's the other boys in the band. But And so we started doing it and then from there... Um, let in quite a few more songs over the coming decades. I know you've talked about it a lot, but there might be people that hear the podcast that may not have heard how it came about. But from my understanding, you were recording um, Rise. You went home and just put your hand on a Ricky Lee Jones CD on the on the rack? I, I'm led to believe that that was the story. Another story that somebody told me, which I thought, Oh, okay. Maybe that happened. Uh, was that a, a very good friend of mine who passed away just recently, Dale Cruz, who did the Lemon Tree and mm. played with us? That he may have um, mentioned to me that if you if you get a chance, have a listen to the Ricky Lee Jones album, Satellite Cowboys, I think it's called. And I thought, okay. Anyway, I did come home, pulled that out that album, CD, put it on, and the first track was this song called The Horses. And I thought, God, that sounds good. That could be an album track for sure. And 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 so I took it into Simon Hussey the next day in the studio because we were at the end of the Rise album recording it. And uh, he, he played it to the... Uh, A&R man, Peter Carpen at the time as well, and apparently both of them, I heard this only a couple of years ago, they both rolled their eyes and went, oh, my God, what's Daryl done now? He's sort of, you know, this sort of, um, yeah, it's not a bad song. Okay. Anyway, Simon uh, put his magic on it, Simon Hussey, and uh, we recorded it. And it came out and then I think Sony decided to make it a single and uh, it, it went to number one here in Australia, which was great. That's remarkable. I mean, the way it's just sort of, people say it's the alternative national anthem. And it's, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I love it as a song. I mean, I love playing it. I love the reaction that it gets and it, um, it's, I don't know, it, it's, it's sort of like the thing where I never would have imagined that there would have been a song that I would be, uh, that I would have recorded that would end up like that, being accepted by 
quite a few people. So where does Love Songs lead you now? I mean, do you think that you will, um, I, I don't know, maybe make another album or is it more a world we live in now where it's very single-based, where it might be another track? Uh, I think maybe I'd like to look at a, an album if I could. Uh, and if it's not that, then maybe it'll, it'll most certainly be another another single or maybe even what, what they call an, an EP, an extended play, four tracks. Yeah. But I think that most definitely will be something next year, whether it's an album. I'd like, I'd like to think that I could spend time doing an album, but it, it, I guess with COVID-19, we're really, I'm, I'm itching to get out and play, but I don't think we'll be able to do that until late this year. And if that, maybe um, at the earliest uh, next year sometime. So... I mean, I've got the time, but it's just whether I've got the enthusiasm to, to do it. Well, I, I said to you the other day, is there anything you'd like to talk about? And uh, you mentioned Antarctica, which you put up some amazing photos of Antarctica recently. The Antarctica, um, a Dr. Reese Harding contacted me via um, the Facebook or the message page and sent me an invitation uh, to come down to the Antarctica, David Base, Davis Base, uh, about three weeks ago, which was the solstice. And he said, come down, Daryl. It'll be great. I don't know how you're going to get here, but because Virgin don't fly here anymore, maybe a canoe, but it'd have to be very solid. Anyway, I replied to the, uh, and there's about 18 of them there at Davis Bay. I replied, love to come. Can't make it this time, maybe later on. And so we've kept communicating and then he um, he, he asked me, do you, or somehow we got round to, I said, have you got a journal or can you write some words about? So he then wrote four or five pages of his trip when he left Hobart to being wow. Antarctica and he sent the accompanying photos. And I just thought, my God, and they're there for a year and they've just had, because of COVID-19, they've had another five months added to the wow. year. And he said it can get a bit weird down there, but they all managed to keep sane, you know. But And I like the cold as well. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sean, I hope, hope it's gone all right. Yeah, it's great talking to you, Dale. I really appreciate you taking the time and congrats again on the single. Oh, thank you. Big thanks to Daryl Braithwaite for being our guest on Sony Music's Time to Talk. Be sure to check out his new single, Love Songs, and if you can, definitely check out the video clip. Just want to thank a few people that made this episode happen for us. Obviously, Daryl himself, Dennis Handlin, Tony Glover, Cassie and Shelley from Sony Music Australia, Jason Milhouse at Recordworks, and we'll see you back here next week for our next episode. Music.